a lot of the highs and lows on the Winnell household lately are based on Little League Baseball. And uh, Dawson is playing uh, baseball this year, and, uh, and he is the starting pitcher. And uh, so e- with each game, there are highs and lows. And one of the most common things I say to him over and over again is, Dawson, keep a positive mind. Keep a positive mind. Because in baseball, if you don't have the right mindset, things can go in one of two directions. If you don't have a positive mindset, things can snowball. And you throw a ball, and then you throw another ball, and you walk a a batter, and then a batter gets a hit. And all of a sudden, if you don't have the right mindset, then the inning gets away from you. And and, uh, And so I constantly am telling Dawson, Dawson, Keep a positive mind because it's easy to have a, to be uh, thinking positively when everything is going well and you're striking out the side, but it's hard when things are not going your way. And there's a spiritual truth here because how do our circumstances affect our view of God? Think about that for a minute. How do, uh, when things are not going well, Does that begin to affect the way that you look at God in your life? It's easy to have a positive mind when everything is going going well and and, uh, things are going your way. But when things go poorly, then then our spiritual lives can get shaky. Think about it this way. When things are going poorly, do you treat others with kindness and gentleness? Or do you become more harsh and impatient? When things are going are difficult, do you give yourself as much grace? And do you honor and respect God in the same way? And so today's sermon is about attitude and perspective. And I think that this is important. The title of today's message is The Mental Side for Our Gentle Side. And we want to think about our mindset. Having the right mindset, our perspective of God changes everything. Our perspective of God changes everything. And so we have been traveling through the book of Ruth. And now we are uh, in the last section of Ruth. And we see that Naomi's circumstances have changed radically from where we found her in the opening chapter. And I wonder if her perspective of God has changed as well. When when all was lost and when she felt like she was without hope, remember what she said? She said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And she said, the Lord has afflicted upon me a hard blow. It's as if she felt a punch in the gut. She says, God has not done right by me. And so her circumstances influenced her perspective on God. Listen to what she says here. Let me just take us back for a moment before we jump into chapter 4. Let me take us back to chapter 1. Here is Naomi talking with the women of, the, of Bethlehem. She's, tra- she's moved back to her hometown of Bethlehem. And she says, one, chapter 1, verse 20, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, 
which means bitter, because the Lord has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought great misfortune upon me. And so how about you? Would you call yourself pleasant? Or would you call yourself bitter? And how much of your circumstances would affect how you, uh, how you view yourself and how you view God? In difficult times, as we have said, it is harder to be gentle. This book of uh, Ruth, a study in Christ-like gentleness. And it's easier to become harsh. When things are hard, do we stand before God with humility and meekness or with pride and anger? Much of this is determined by our mindset, our perspective towards God. And so in today's sermon, we're going to now look at the last chapter and we find three questions for gaining a godly perspective. Three questions for gaining a godly perspective from Ruth Chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. Let's read this together. Ruth uh, 4, 13 through 22. I'll read it and uh, you can uh, follow along. But as we do, we are seeking to see where is, God's pers- where is uh, a godly perspective in all of this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi. Now I wonder if these are the same women that Naomi was talking to in the first chapter. Naomi was speaking in that chapter. Now the women say to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout all Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better for you than seven sons has given him birth. In ancient Hebrew uh, thought, the idea of having seven sons was the ultimate. That was the full best family you could have. Naomi is better to, or I mean Ruth is better to you than seven sons. Then Naomi took the child in her arms. Can you imagine the thoughts that were running through her mind as she holds this little baby in her arms in her old age and says she took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women uh, living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashan, Nashan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Now, in this passage, we see that Naomi's circumstances have changed a lot through the, through the birth of a grandson, the birth of Obed. And uh, has her perspective towards all of these things changed? Well, we're going to have to speculate some here, but let's, uh, let's ask some questions of the text, and in the process, let's ask some questions for ourselves. 
three questions for gaining a godly perspective. The first question that jumps out at me here is, what voices are speaking the loudest in your life? You see, the first thing that jumps out at me in this text is how the women come before Naomi and they speak, uh, and they speak these words of truth to her. It's so interesting to me that the women that Naomi spoke to in the first uh, chapter are now speaking to her and they say three things. First of all, they give a word of praise. Verse 14, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. You see, Naomi thought she was without hope. And there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And now they offer praise to God because it is very clear that God is the one who has provided for her. There, she was left empty and now God has filled her up. Uh, Boaz is her kinsman redeemer. And all the credit goes to the Lord himself. They offer a word of praise. And then they give to Naomi a prayer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Now the he there is a little ambiguous. Is the one who is to become famous throughout Israel Boaz? Or is it the child? Or is it God himself? In fact, I, I think maybe we can say all of the above. In the, word, in the time in which this is written, it is described as the period of the judges. The Judges were a dark time in world history. In fact, the book of Judges describes this time as a period in which every person, every man and woman did as he or she saw fit in their own eyes. No one obeyed the Lord. It was a time when it was just a cesspool of immorality and and ethically, it was, it was a terrible place, full of evil. And now, th with, with the coming of this baby, may this act of goodness, may Boaz and what he has done, may this little child and how he will provide for you, may God himself stand as a light in a dark period. May it be famous. May it spread. May, it, uh, may this good deed stand out in this cesspool of a nation. And then thirdly, the women give a prediction. May he, again, kind of a double meaning here, may he renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Surely Boaz and the child, but ultimately is it not God who renews us and sustains us? And so the women offer to Naomi a word of praise and of prayer and prediction. And the women are speaking truth into her heart and life. After a long period of listening to the craziness of her circumstances, Naomi is now allowing God's voice to be the loudest voice in her life. And so let me ask us, what voices are speaking the loudest in your life? It's not a question of if there are voices speaking into your life. It's a question of which voices are the loudest. You see, we have voices that are speaking into us and influencing us all the time. Most of the time, we are not conscious of that. But all of these, all of these messages that we are bombarded with all the time 
messages from friends and family, messages that we hear in the news and on the radio and as we listen to songs, as we read things on the internet, as we watch TV. Don't tell me these TV shows do not have messages. And all of these things that are around us constantly, even the type of things that we spend our time and we put our enjoyment into, they are all speaking to us and they are all forming us spiritually. And sometimes when I have a sense of an unrest in my own heart, maybe a dissatisfaction in my own life, I realize... I've let certain voices become too loud. I've let certain things speak into my life and form me spiritually that should not be primary in the way that I view myself and I view the, uh, the world around me and I, have, and I view God Himself because it is in those times that I lose my peace in my relationship with the Lord. You see, there are messages all around us and they are inevitable and inescapable. They are things that are coming at us and they cause us to long for this or to long for that, to move in this or that direction. And what voices will we let us control our hearts and our souls? The voices around us are there. And I am convinced that most people do not go deep in their faith because they are allowing certain voices to be too loud in their lives. They are not seeking to allow the voice of God to be the one thing that influences their perspective of all the things around them. And so what do we do if we have all of these voices around us? Well, the answer is... We have to be intentional to, to counter all these other voices with the voice of God and let Him have the loudest voice in our life. That is why this book is so very important. Every day, to spend time just reading the Bible to let the words of God sink into our souls. This is an act that we spend a few minutes here in this word. It helps us to counter all those other voices that are going to come at us throughout all the rest of the day. That's why it is so important that we have good Christian friends around us that will speak truth to us, that have the courage to say, this is what you need, to offer like the women did, to offer us uh, to offer into our lives praise of what God has done and what He is doing. To offer to us prayers for us. To speak to us predictions that God is going to do what He has said He will do. To let good Christian friends, to come before the Lord every week to hear the preached word. This is so important that we come humbly. God, what do you have for me? Because believe me, on the other seven days a week, there are many other voices that are coming at us. This is our one time to come before God uh, with the preached word and to say, God, what is the message that you have for us? And so it is that we develop a hunger and a thirst for the word of God that he would have the loudest voice in our, in our life. Worldly voices around, uh, are all around us, so we have to develop 
a hunger for the voice of God. Okay, I want to give you an illustration, and this is a dangerous illustration for me because this is an illustration I am not living out. Okay, so here's the illustration. If you really want to have a good diet, okay, here's where I get in trouble because I know I don't have a good diet, uh, you have to be disciplined not just to eat the right foods uh, for a while, but you have to eat, uh, be disciplined to eat the right foods for a long enough period of time that your appetite changes. You see, I've got a sweet tooth, and uh, I like to eat a lot of stuff that I'm not supposed to eat, and I get a craving for those things. But I know that if uh, over a long period of time I cut those things out of my diet and I eat healthy foods, eventually those other things would not taste so good to me. And eventually I would crave healthy foods that are good for me. And the same thing can be true for all of these other influences in our lives. It's hard if we do not have an appetite for God. It's hard if we don't long for the uh, voice of God. And all of these other things we long for so much, things that are leading us to, to uh, greed and to materialism and to lust and these things, and they become so strong, it's as if we can't move in those, we can't help but move in those directions. But you know what? It, it takes a long time of the diet of the Word of God, and then eventually we don't long for those things anymore. We don't hunger for those things anymore. Now all of a sudden we long and hunger for the truth of God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So in other words, to come and to develop an appetite in which we eat Jesus, we eat his word, we believe in him, and then there is truth and there is peace within our hearts. And so this first question is an important one. What voices are speaking the loudest in your life? Second question of the, these three questions for gaining a godly perspective is this. Do you trust in the hidden hand of God? So you see, I, that question came to mind because of the very first verse here in this passage. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Did you know that in this last section of Ruth is the first time in the whole book that God is given direct credit for anything? This is the first time in the whole book that it is said that God does something. What does he do? He enables Ruth to conceive a child. Now, Ruth was married 10 years before to Milan. And uh, then her husband passed away. Now, why did Ruth not have a, a child in 10 years of marriage? And now, all of a sudden, she gets married and immediately she becomes uh, pregnant. Well, the passage is very clear. The Lord enabled her to uh, conceive. But here is my question. Is this the first time in the whole book that God has been active? And I would say, heavens no. Let's go back to uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2, Ruth needs to go and find a field to glean in. 
The times are dark and the people are wicked, as we've said. She needs to find a landlord who will be gracious to her. Ruth 2.3 says, as it turned out, that's the phrase I want to emphasize, as it turned out, she found herself working the field belonging to Boaz. Now, if you were to, offer, if you were to make a literal word-for-word translation of the Hebrew here, this is what it would be. This is what it would be. As chance chanced upon her. The Hebrew, you don't translate it that way because it sounds weird. As chance chanced upon her. Or we might say, as luck would have it. But do we really think it's luck? No. This is the hidden hand of God guiding uh, Ruth to go to Boaz's field. Chapter 3. Naomi concocts this crazy plan to get Boaz to marry Ruth. Let me take us back to chapter 3 a minute. Okay, here's the plan that Naomi comes up with. You're going to go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night, and Boaz is going to fall asleep, and after he falls asleep, you're going to sneak up on him. You're going to uncover his legs and lay at his feet, and then he's going to wake up, and he's going to just all of a sudden desire to marry you. Does that, do you think that plan would work? I don't think that plan would work. That is the dumbest plan I have ever heard. Uh, Boaz is going to wake up in the middle of the night, find this strange woman at his feet. Well, he knows her, but who's going to marry a crazy woman that comes and lays at his feet in the middle of the night? But somehow, the plan works. How does the plan work? I think it's the hidden hand of God. God's hand is all over this past, all over this book, even though it doesn't uh, give God credit directly. And could it not be said the same thing for our lives? God's hand is moving all over our lives. And, and, and oftentimes we do not understand it, at least not until in hindsight. When I was done with uh, seminary, I uh, was done with seminary in three years, and I did not know what I was going to do next. I, uh, I thought about, do I look for a job? Do I uh, continue on with school? And for some reason, I thought, I'll just stay at seminary for another year and, and spend money to take classes that are not towards any degree. It's kind of a dumb plan, but uh, that's exactly what I did. I spent another year taking classes, paying tuition, but I wasn't even pursuing a degree. And I look back on that and I think, what a crazy thing. But that's what I felt like the Lord was leading me to do. At least he was closing enough doors. That's what I was forced to do. But you know what happened in my fourth year of seminary? It was during that year that I met the person who is now my wife. And I believe that was the reason God had me stay another year. Thank you, Rodney. I'll give that an amen as well. <laughs> but is that, is that not your life as well? Open doors and closed doors, and you wonder, what in the world is God doing? And it is oftentimes only in hindsight that we recognize God was in control the whole time. It is the hidden hand of God. Do we trust the hidden hand of God? I prayed with a young gal this week who, wrestling with what's God's plan for her future, and just 
frustrated by one closed door after another. I would bet my life savings that if she looks back on these days 20 years from now, she will recognize this is exactly what God uh, was leading her to do. Closed doors were the hidden hand of God, and God provides. Do we trust the hidden hand of God? So that leads us to the third question. The third question is similar to the second. What difference would it make if you knew that God was orchestrating all events to accomplish his big agendas? The book closes with a genealogy. I don't like genealogies because there are a lot of names that are hard to pronounce and uh, that I have no idea who these people are. But I recognize the last name in the, in the genealogy, and that is King David. I'm going to just read the last verse and a half because I don't want to have to take a chance of messing up one of these names again. But it says, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. David was considered the greatest king in the history of Israel. For the first readers of this uh, book, we look at that genealogy and we think it's boring. We almost just want to skip over it. But I'm convinced that the genealogy is actually the whole point of the book. This is what it's all leading towards. For the first readers, they would have looked at that and they would say, Oh my word, Ruth is the great-grandma of David. And the whole point of the book is this period of the judges, this moral cesspool, as I've said. How in the world do you get a David out of this nation at this time? And this is, and this is uh, what the whole book is about. It's about God. It's about God orchestrating all events to accomplish His big purposes. You see, the genealogy, we ought not to rush past it too quickly because we have to understand that God is at work in all of human history. In fact, God is at work in your life to accomplish His big purposes. Now let me skip over to the New Testament to another genealogy. The very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Here is verse 5. I'm just going to pick out two verses in the genealogy. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. And then jumping down to verse 16, just so we reach its conclusion. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the mother of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. You see, God was working and orchestrating all of these events to ultimately get to the person of Jesus, who was the Messiah. And before we think too, before we think, uh, too lightly of our lives, God is orchestrating all events in our lives to accomplish His big agendas as well. You see, when you look at Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, everyday people, people that look a lot like us, and a little baby born by the name of Obed, Obed uh, literally means in Hebrew, servant. And all of us are servants of the Lord as well. That God is working in our lives to accomplish His big picture. 
we're two weeks away from Easter Sunday. When we think of Easter Sunday, we're going to gather and it's going to be a special day to celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death. And as we celebrate that, our hope, we understand that this is God's big agenda. This is what all of history is pointing forward to. And in fact, now that we live between the cross and the second coming, our lives are all pointing towards Jesus coming and recreating the new heavens and the new earth. And so every day we come before Him and we remind ourselves, the voice of God to us, that we are loved that we are cared for, that He has plans for our lives. In fact, that is why we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Because we are reminding ourselves the voice of God speaks to us, that He has plans for us. In a couple moments, we are going to have the Lord's Supper together. And uh, we're going to take a little piece of bread, and we're going to take a cup of juice, and... uh, As we have this meal together, we're going to eat this. It's not going to do much for your appetite, okay? It's not meant to do much for your physical appetite, but it is meant to do a lot for our spiritual appetite. We're going to take this juice and this bread, and as we do, my hope is that we would take it in and that it would feed our souls and it would satisfy us. Do you ever, on a really hot day, we're about to get into some hot days, do you ever uh, have, you're, you're, you're just tired out because of the heat, it's, it's, uh, it's caused you to just be uh, worn out, and you take that cold glass of water, it's got about seven or eight ice cubes, I mean, it's really cold, and you feel it just going down your throat and into your chest, and you can just and it just refreshes you all the way through. That's what I hope the Word of God to us in the, in the Lord's uh, Supper does to us. It speaks His truth, His mercy, His love into our souls. In fact, let me take this a step further. Even more so than a cold glass of water, on a really hot day, you know what my favorite thing to do is? Jump in the neighbor's pool. I, I got a great relationship with my neighbor, and I hop the fence all the time and just do a cannonball. And it is the most amazing feeling. All of a sudden, I'm tired out, I'm hot, I have no energy because it's 100 degrees out, and I just jump in there and, whoa, the whole energy just floods in you feel refreshed and you're alive again. And that, and that is my hope for the Word.